1: Welcome to episode 363 with my guest Luke Palmer. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, the intersection of uh, autism slash Asperger's and uh, nerd culture, especially uh, anime. Uh, My name is Paul Gilmartin. I like to act surprised when I hear my name. My name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the the metal, uh, and then I like to mispronounce it. Uh, This is the metal illness happy hour, a, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions. Past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. The show is part interview with a guest and then part listener confessions via the surveys people take anonymously uh, on our website, which is mentalpod.com. Uh, the show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a doctor. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room. It doesn't suck. Um couple of things to note um there is no more amazon link they canceled uh my account because apparently i broke the terms of service you're not supposed to mention that you have an amazon link and so they revoked my membership as an amazon associate so i can no longer make um money from uh, you guys shopping at, at amazon uh, i tried to reapply and they uh rejected me <laughs> i'm used to that feeling um so that's a bummer um Maybe I'll apply in a year, see if, but but that sucks because that was a decent amount of, uh, income and you guys were really good at, uh, stepping up and helping out the show that way. So, um, you know, if there's another way, uh, that you'd be interested in helping the show, that'd be awesome. If not, totally understand. Um, and I had been warned by a fucking listener. They said, you know, I heard somebody else had their thing canceled and I was like, nobody pays attention to this show. Amazon's not going to listen to this show. And plus, I didn't really think it was, not that I thought that listener was lying, but I thought, oh, that person that had it canceled, they had to have been doing something worse than than just, you know, mentioning it. Um, I should have read the agreement. I should have listened to that listener. Uh, who reads agreements, though? You get like a paragraph in, you get museum legs, you need to go take a nap, and uh, just like that South Park episode, you just you just sign it. You just sign it. Um, I don't know how your holidays were, are, uh, Christmas Eve. I had fun. I invited a bunch of, uh, support group, uh, friends over. I grilled, uh, it was nice. It's amazing what you will do when you are faced with being alone because you haven't been invited anywhere. (laughs) It'll make you step up your game. Um, well, for so many years it was, um, you know, my wife and I would do it together. And so there was a group of friends and, um, you know, um, what do you do? What do you do? And I don't want to go, Hey, can you come here instead of going to see my ex? So I, I sit, I sit by myself. Well, last year I spent Christmas Eve, Christmas and my birthday, uh, alone and i was too prideful to call anybody and say hey this really hurts i'm really lonely i'm really alone and um sad so this year i thought i'm i'm not going to i'm not going to do that and i was able to do that for christmas eve but christmas day i couldn't i just couldn't i couldn't invite anybody and i couldn't uh you know, ask somebody if I could tag along. I just—I don't think I have it in me to to do that. It would feel so—it would feel so crushing to a experience any potential awkwardness and uh, B, be either rejected or feel like they invited me but they didn't really want me. And a lot of that might just be in my head. But the important thing is I spent Christmas Day alone. And then I got a text from a friend. And uh, she doesn't live here. She lives in the Bay Area. And, uh, and I called her back and we talked. And she's like, I feel so pathetic. I've only seen one person today. And I said, well, you, you have me beat by one person. And uh, she felt better by comparison. But we laughed. And by the time we hung up, uh, we both felt better. And so it was, uh, it was nice. It was very nice. I had ordered some, uh, unrelated to Christmas, but it just happened a couple of weeks ago. I love this particular food that, that I get. And it's raw uh, cashew butter and raw pistachio butter. It's it, If you don't cook it, it keeps a lot of the um, nutrients and minerals and stuff in it. And uh, so I order it from this this place and I eat this stuff every day. It's just like perfect to eat between meals for, for me. Um, but I have to order it because I get it in, in bulk. And I was expecting it to come and it didn't come. And I was like, okay, it's going to come tomorrow and it doesn't come the next day. And so I call them and while, while they're looking into what is taking uh, so long with this stuff, I'm put on hold. And this is the music. This is the actual music I was put on hold with. Paul, we've got some bad news about your cashew butter. There was an accident. It didn't make it. It almost made it to the box. But one of our workers slipped on some sunflower oil. and I'm glad you didn't have to see it. One of our workers thinks that they might be going blind, but that, that has nothing to do with your order. Listen. We need to talk about your pistachio butter. We love you, Paul, but we don't think we're going to be able to fill your order by Thursday. I know we've let you down, but we don't want you to give up. We want you to find something else to spread on your crackers between now and Wednesday. As God is my witness, we will have some nut butter to you by a week from Friday. Hang in there. It's on its way. Who chooses that fucking music for hold music? Especially around Christmas, when everybody, well, not everybody, when a large number of people are depressed to begin with. I want to read a couple of surveys, and then we'll get to our uh, our interview with Luke. Uh, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Matt, and he writes, uh, I was suicidal the other day, so I text-messaged myself and basically talked to myself about what was going on. I tried to respond to myself as I would a friend. Then my phone said... There are too many text messages coming from this number, and it blocked me from text messaging myself. It is so fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, This is an email that I got from a young listener uh, named Sam, and I was just, I can't believe that she is only 16 years old. Um. This is like one of the more important emails I think I've ever gotten and one of the most insightful emails I've gotten for somebody that lives uh, with a parent who uh, has dissociative identity disorder. And she writes... Uh Hey, since this week's episode had a couple people mentioning dissociative disorders, I thought I'd share my experience as someone with a parent who has DID and how I deal with it. My mom started dissociating four years ago when I was 12. It started after my parents split up. Me and my siblings moved out with my mom, and conveniently, my dad left us alone and kind of just decided he wanted to piss off and forgot he had kids for a little bit. But I'm guessing this is what brought back some trauma. At first, it was so frightening, and I felt so alone. I didn't know how to deal with it or why it was happening, and I had no idea who to go to for support, so I didn't tell anyone. Big mistake. No one should ever do that. It took me a couple of years to understand it, and even though it's still kind of unsettling to see uh, my mom as some character completely different to who she really is, I doubt that will ever change, and I suppose that's the first thing you have to come to terms with. Anyway, here are some things I've learned over the last couple of years that helped me deal with my mom. Firstly, understand triggers. I can't stress enough how important that is. For example, whenever my mom starts talking about her marriage and gets even slightly emotional about it, she either zones out or becomes someone else and that someone else is usually the mean guy. I know everyone has different triggers so it's not always possible but try your best to avoid them. Things like different smells, being somewhere specific at any time of day. You'd be surprised how much day versus night matters. Just make sure you identify what the triggers are. Secondly, if you know someone who has DID, it's creepy, but get to know their personalities because it's likely that they are all completely different. They can be polite, rude, aggressive, young or old. Some are really nasty and some you might feel like you can become best friends with, but that's taking it too far. And this is even more strange at first, but try getting on their good side. You wanna be able to get along. It's much easier to deal with them that way. Also, I deserve to be put in the bin for this one, and it's strange, but as pitifully sad as it is, you can also become attached to a personality. So when they leave or, quote, die, you may feel kinda sad. So always be prepared, don't get too attached because bereavement counseling in this situation might be awkward. There's a thing that uh, uh, therapists can do where they uh, reintegrate multiple uh, personalities um, uh, for the person with the uh, disorder. I don't think it's necessarily uh, a given that it can be done, but um, anyway, continuing. Uh, If you have a dissociative disorder, you probably experience memory loss or even amnesia, so you're going to seem zoned out and like you're not paying attention or feel that you change the subject sometimes, but that's okay. I know it's easier said than done, but it's not your fault, so it's not something you need to feel bad about. Go easy on yourself. Lastly, and most importantly, if you deal or live with someone who has DID or depersonalization, etc., look after yourself. It can be so draining sometimes, and it's really important you pay attention to your own mental health, because if you deal with someone who has a mental disorder, chances are that you are also a little fucked up, so pay attention to yourself. If you're little like I was, tell someone. It will make life so much easier, like a nice teacher, or an aunt, or uncle, grandparent, anyone you feel comfortable with. Just not a priest um i don't know what the story is there and if you're on the flip side oh maybe because the priest uh that she dealt with was like she needs to pray more and if you're on the flip side support is so essential you can't do it alone and you don't need to if your family and friends can't support you there are people who can so please reach out whether any of this was useful or not here you go you get to read it anyway thank you for doing the podcast um and then she says some nice things which I can't read because uh, I would feel like I'm full of myself. And uh, we, we can't. We can't have that. So, um... The shattered cashew jar is going to be laid to rest a week from Wednesday at Nut Butter Memorial Park. If you're interested in paying your respects, the lid won't be able to make it, but the container will be there in five separate hearses. I'm making myself laugh. This is a struggle in a sentence uh, filled out by Splenda Daddy, and she writes about her anxiety. Uh, the uh, The volume in my head goes up, the volume outside goes down about PTSD it pretends to be other things about being a sex crime victim like I lose a little bit of myself every time I let someone touch me Uh, snapshot from her life Uh, I reached out to some high school friends uh, the winter after I failed out of college it felt nice to talk to them again so I suggested we get together for New Year's Eve they got so excited about it they started working on cocktail ideas and we planned it out extensively when the night came I didn't want to go. I didn't tell them I wasn't coming because I felt too ashamed to see their reactions. Instead, I blocked them on social media and never talked to them them again. All I did that night was stay home and play video games. First of all, there's a couple of reasons I wanted to read that one, but you know, I I say a lot of times when when somebody gets rejected or something doesn't work out that it might not be about you, this is such a great example. And I guarantee you at least a couple, if not all, of those friends blame themselves, thought it had something to do with something that they had done. And it's always a possibility that it's not about us. And um, (laughs) as painful as that is to to hear that it might not always be about you. Um, this is a same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Just Give Me a Minute and about her depression. She writes, Thinking about all the things I should be doing while laying in bed and somehow convincing myself that if I put it off long enough, the tasks will just disappear. That one is so fucking spot on about her anxiety before calling anyone i have to go over all possible scenarios um what might be asked and what i would say in response even completely non-consequential calls like ordering pizza i get a small flush of panic whenever the phone rings i do too i it's never like oh maybe it's somebody who loves me it's always oh my god what did i fuck up now who did I disappoint or who's going to need something from me? That's actually probably even more than I fucked up um, about her alcoholism and drug addiction. Halfway between needing weed to cope with anxiety and just liking being high all the time. Am I convincing myself I need it for my anxiety or am I convincing myself I like being high so I don't get other help? That's a great question. And you know what? You'll never know until you try getting help. But you probably won't get help, like most of us, uh, until you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. Um, And then the snapshot from her life. I fucking love this one. When you've been sitting in bed, staring off into space for so long, your neck starts to stiffen and hurt, yet you lack the energy to turn your head to a different position. Oh, my God. That is so fantastic. And that's why I recommend a neck butler. Oh, a neck butler will swoop right in there, ask you what you want to look at, and you tell them, turn me towards the Rembrandt. Turn me towards the ducks on a pond. You know what? Turn me toward any other English cliche that I can think of. Uh... This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Chimichangas. And he writes, uh, What's he right. Where is this? Oh, about his depression? Undiagnosed. Even if I had $10 billion in my bank account, I would just feel as lonely. about his anxiety? The dread of facing one's own thoughts at night, every night. That's what ice cream is for. About his alcoholism and drug addiction, I don't even like to smoke anymore, but apparently I'd rather have cancer than deal with reality. Oh my God, that is so fucking poetic. About his OCD, it is very important to finish everything you start. Unfortunately, those folders are not perfectly aligned just yet. Uh... About uh, compulsive behaviors, giving myself a horrific, super short haircut at 3 a.m. because of how much skin on my head hurts from compulsively twisting my hair, and then about experiencing sexual bias, he ju- and, and he identifies as bi curious. Uh, he just writes simply, "I live in Russia." Um, Snapshot from his life. That one time I was going to finally stand up for myself and tell my father that I hate him and how he dictates my life, I ended up promising to do better and listening to how hard his day was. Holy shit. Thank you for that. Uh, this is filled out by a mean, lean, self-harming machine and about her um, PTSD I'm not a mean person. I'm just ready to clock everyone I meet. Uh, About living with an abuser, uh, her narcissistic dad, every bit of advice is started with, it would be best for me if... uh, about experiencing depersonalization. I'm watching a movie of my own life. It seems pretty low budget, and the plot is all over the place. I can't work out the genre. (laughs) It's great. Um... And then oh, this is such an awfulsome snapshot from her life. My dad pushed to have me go to Wisconsin for college. He threatened to cut me off if I went somewhere else. He filled out an application in my name. When I asked him if the college was any good, he didn't know. He didn't know what they specialized in. When I asked why the push, he asked or he answered, "I've never been to Wisconsin, and I'd like an excuse to visit." Oh my God! Uh, any comments to make the podcast better? Uh, maybe more material on uh, financial abuse would be helpful. I was thinking. I think I know what you're saying with that one. Parents who uh, kind of use money um, to um, manipulate their children. Um, yeah, I don't know what a good term term for that would be because I think some people would recoil at the you know the term financial abuse, but I think. Um, financial manipulation? Maybe it's... I don't know who gives a shit. You're not my real dad. This is... I am not raking the I'm sorry. I was just having a flashback to when I was uh, 12 years old. This is filled out by shit. Why did I say that? And she writes about her anxiety... Uh, the only part of my body that seems functioning is my tear glands. This is so good. Uh, about experiencing racial or cultural bias. Brown girls don't have depression. They're just strange, lazy, or too influenced by white Westerners. Can't imagine how frustrating that has to be. Um, and then, uh, she writes, "I don't know if this counts as compulsive lying, but I can't remember the last time I told the truth about anything going on in my life, even to my therapist." That seems healthy. That her words. Um, yeah, that would be a good thing. Uh, you should maybe listen to the episode with Mark uh, Teich, T e i c h, uh, and he talked. Uh, it was a very early episode in the from the first year. Um, uh, do, 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 do. I probably shouldn't do this because financially it's probably not wise but there's a chance that um, I'm going to be putting uh, early episodes behind a paywall because I need um, I need to increase the budget of the of the show it's just not uh, it's not cutting it and um, I've been approached by a company uh, that would help me do that. So, if you're listening and you want to go back and hear any of those episodes, um, do it. Do it. I don't know how far back um, we'll go. but um, And <laughs> if somebody has started listening to the show from the beginning, this is what happened. Uh, And then a snapshot from uh, her life. My coping mechanisms have mostly fallen apart, so I've taken to giving myself the world's most pathetic TED-esque talk to get myself through it. Another one I've held onto is drafting suicide notes to psych myself out of doing anything. Needless to say, my speeches to myself aren't all that motivational. Well, this would be a good place to plug our sponsor betterhelp.com uh they do online counseling i use them i love them i love my therapist her name is donna i talk about her all the time and she is uh she's the best she's the best i feel safe with her she's got a good sense of humor uh well let's put it this way she laughs at my jokes i'm assuming she has a good sense of humor um and uh yeah, it's uh, if you want to check out uh, betterhelp.com, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Uh, that way they know that you came from the podcast, uh, and that helps improve uh, the chances that they will continue advertising on this show. So betterhelp.com slash mental, and then you'll just fill out a questionnaire. You'll get matched with a betterhelp.com counselor, and you can experience a free week of counseling. To see if online counseling is right for you. Uh, you need to be over 18. And uh, I didn't know what to expect. with Because uh, I do a weekly uh, video um, therapy session with her. And I didn't know what to expect. And it's every bit as good as in-person uh, therapy. For me, it has been. Uh, so, again, betterhelp.com slash mental. This is an awful moment filled out by, um, I ruined my sister's birthday. And she writes, when I was 16, I was very depressed and suicidal. I overdosed on pills in my bedroom. I vomited on my bed because my stomach couldn't handle all the pills. My boyfriend came to pick me up to take me to my sister's birthday party. We got to the bowling alley and I was barely conscious. I sat down in a chair and passed out on the table. When I came to, I told my boyfriend I had taken pills. He picked me up and took me straight to the hospital. He called my parents on the way and told them we left the bowling alley and were going to the hospital. I spent the night in the hospital. When I was released, my parents took me home. When I got home, my dad told me to sit down with him in the living room because we needed to talk. He told me how selfish I was, how the hospital visit was going to cost him thousands of dollars, and worst of all, I ruined my sister's birthday party. My boyfriend couldn't contain himself anymore. He started yelling at my dad about how he needed to shut the fuck up because his daughter was still alive. That amazing boyfriend is now my husband.
0: I'm so scared of being alive and so
1: scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people. I and mean, it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks.
0: I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my authors have different handwriting and different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. My first thought was I'm about to die. Stomach-clutching despair. Ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the act diet in fourth grade
1: I'm here with uh, Luke Palmer, and uh, after a nice, solid hour of me (laughs) swapping equipment in and out, uh, we're going to give this a shot. We're going to give this a shot. Uh, Our paths crossed um, when I was made aware of a web series that you uh, are doing, and I just watched the trailer of it, and
0: um, I'll let you describe it to... uh, to the fine people at home. It's pretty... I've had so much trouble describing the show to people. Um, The best way to describe it, it's an incredibly dark, tragic comedy about five people trying to get to an anime convention. (laughs) That's (laughs) about... As far as I get, if you've turned off the podcast now, I totally understand. (laughs) And when you say, uh,
1: uh, you're being sarcastic when you say it's totally dark or no, I I think it's interesting.
0: Um, I think it's uh, the people who watch the show and the people who've resonated with the show say, this is one of the most painful things I've watched, but it's incredible and I love it. Um, and it's weird when I, when I, when I say dark, um, I never mean for it to be like, oh, we're being deliberately cool, we're being edgy, but like, I sort of wanted to make a very um, brutal film. And not brutal in like the, like in a saw, hostile way, but brutal in like a really emotionally raw, awkward, sad kind of way. Yes. Uh, People, people uh,
1: with. Minimal social skills, yeah, uh, in a social world, doing their best to uh, survive. It's when I watched it, I, mm. I did not think dark. What I thought was, I thought it was really endearing because the uh-huh. way you portrayed. These characters, uh, a lot of whom seem to be on the autism spectrum. <laughs> Definitely
0: um, get into that in a little bit. And they are, uh, what do you call them, con fans? Um, yeah. Fans of Comic-Con? Or convention people, convention. or anime friends, otaku. There, there's a thousand of different. This is their life. Mm-hmm. And
1: there is a uh, there is a detail, a level of detail with it. When I watched it, I said... The people that made this have lived this experience. It's too detailed for this to be something they're amused by. And and I I thought it was great. And so uh, I was like, let's have coffee. Let's talk. Yeah. Um, maybe you could uh, come on the podcast and be a guest. And when you suggested, I would love to talk about uh, people on the spectrum and its relationship to uh, con culture yes and and stereotypes of con culture and stereotypes of asperger's autism etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. i was like yes oh, thank let's God. let's talk about this um so where do we where do we begin i think that's a great question well, well let's start with the fact that when you were a kid yeah. you were uh on the spectrum to a much greater degree than you are yeah. today talk about what it was like then, what happened, and what it's like. Now. So,
0: it's definitely very interesting. Um, we'll be the judge of that. you will be Luke. the judge of that. I don't, I don't get to decide what's interesting <laughs> anymore. That's one thing I've learned the hard way. When I was uh, a wee wee kid, I... Hold on one second. Did uh, we say the name of the show Oh, thing? the show is called Two Kawaii for Comfort. Um, yes. two Number two, uh, number four... Uh, kawaii. If, if you had any experience with the anime world, you definitely and hopefully it'll be somewhere in the episode description, but if you have any experience with the anime world, um, you'll know how to spell it. And it's a take um, on Too Close for Comfort. Yes. Um, for some reason, that was the one title that always stuck out with me because I always thought this is either Um, This is either something that's trying way too hard to be funny or something that can get deadly serious and sad in a moment. And I always thought, like, that's the title. It says everything that we're trying to say about the show. Um, You're talking about Too Close for Comfort? Oh, Too kawaii for Comfort. (laughs) Because a lot of... um, a lot of the ideas they were playing with is uh, people who use pop culture to self-medicate, which I think is uh, the most fascinating thing. One of the big movies that always inspired me was a uh, big fan with Patton Oswalt. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing that and at the Kendall Square Movie Theater, and I fell in love with it when I saw it when I was like 16, and I was seeing all sorts of weird dark comedies, and I always saw in the back of my head, why hasn't anyone done the dark comedy about anime convention culture?
1: It, it's kind of shocking that it, it hasn't is. been done yet. Um, Maybe because anybody who could do a good job at it can't uh,
0: get out of their house to go (laughs) (laughs) pitch it. That's a stereotype. It's 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 a a stereotype. stereotype. It's an interesting stereotype because what a lot of people don't realize... um, is like that that you know the whole basement dwelling nerd stereotype the whole uh, anime people don't have a lot of sex stereotype it's kind of been flipped on its head in recent years in fact like there's so many people who go to cons that are some of the most sexually active and experimental people out there there's people who are incredibly social just in their own circles but you do notice patterns of behavior with people that are that are in there, that people that are in that culture. And to me, like, I think one of the, one of the big inspirations for the show was the Felicia's day show, the guild. And I remember a friend of mine, after watching Dr. Horrible, I watched the guild and they had a whole season that took place at a convention. And I was like gobsmacked because I was watching it. And I went, "Oh my god, this is just like what me and my friends do." Because conventions used to be my like my everything. Mm-hmm. I used to love anime and convention culture, and I was watching it. And I'm like, "This is it's a show that's about a convention. This is just like my life, except." nobody's having a mental breakdown. That guy over there should be acting like an asshole. Everyone should be... This isn't anything like... Nobody's Nobody's catastrophizing anything. Nobody's catastrophizing everything and everybody's having a good time. Right. It's not what I went through growing up at all. And not that it was all negative, but I wanted to try and, and synthesize what that experience was like. Do you, do you think that part of the
1: reason maybe that um that stereotype no longer holds true about you know them not getting laid and not being social is that social media has brought like-minded people together because when i was growing up um there was a i think there was truth to the fact that people who were outside the mainstream uh you know flow were isolated and were lonely and
0: were kind of trapped in their heads. And when you look at the earliest anime conventions, it was it was VHS bootleg tapes that people brought in from Japan. The internet changed everything in terms of form, in terms of that, in terms of how like, you know, 4chan, which is the horrible underbelly of the internet is also where so much anime culture and internet culture spread from. And so much convention culture is perpetuated through that. Um, and I remember, I mean, the big draw that, um, that I got into the thing that really got me off on the con culture path was a webcomic called mega Tokyo that I loved when I was like 14 or 15 and you look back on it and it has not aged particularly well, but it was that sort of niche thing. That sort of thing that you just sort of, after enough scrolling and enough looking around, you find something that spoke to you online. Um, and I, and yeah, the internet's allowed for a huge, like this. Like, anybody I, I, in the anime community can easily agree with this. It's almost spread like a virus now. When you look at the appeal of this specific, bizarre, question mark genre, question mark art form, it's definitely now because there's so many different types of it. It's more of a culture than it is a form. Why? Why is it so? Because when I watch anime Yeah. What was the it, last it one does, you
1: saw? I can't even name one. I've watched five <laughs> minutes of one and when I don't get it. The closest thing I got to it was watching Speed Racer when I was a kid. Oh wow. And even then thinking I love that this is about a really cool race car, but something is really off about this. Of course I didn't know that they were Why is there a monkey?
0: It. Why is the monkey allowed in the car?
1: It was more the dialogue and the stiltedness of mm. it. Uh, what is it about anime? Is it visual? Is it everything? Is it the characters? Is it?
0: I think. Well, the interesting thing, and you know, I'm I'm not going to get into. Um, I'm not going to claim to be a major thesis expert. I may say some things that are totally wrong, but one of the interesting things is um, anime exists as a as a post war pop culture icon in Japan. It's sort of almost a retaliation of what happened after... It was an art form that sort of slowly became popular after the bombings and after the American government settlement and after the westernization of Japan. And one thing that I think... There was an article I read a long time ago. There's this artist, Takashi Murakami. And he does... He's like the godfather of it, right? Is that the guy I'm thinking of? No, no. You're thinking of Osamu Tezuka. Okay. Um, different. This guy's more recent. This guy's thousands. He's a pop artist. He's okay. sort of like Warhol, but with anime. And he does this art style called Superflat, which if you've seen those weird things with the smiling flowers, or um, he's in a lot of modern art museums. And, one, and I don't remember if it was him specifically, but it was one of the Superflat articles that I read um, that said that, he, that the, the, the defining aspects of anime are the sexuality um, and the eyes. The eye is sort of the key thing of what separates the anime style from a traditional American style. Because when you look at American comics, the focus are all on these huge muscular bodies or these sort of cartoon things with anime. All the characters have these very shiny flat eyes and they have very deformed proportions, but they're never trying to be realistically deformed unless you're dealing with like Junji Ito or something like that. But the eyes and the subject matter sort of are the defining, like question mark what is anime thing go ahead and i think the the thing that was interesting that i read in in that one particular article which i not able to cite off the top of my head was that when you're looking at an anime eye i'm um, like when i'm looking at you right now i'm gazing at you and you are gazing at me we are sharing a mutual gaze the anime eye is flat there's a flatness to it where we recognize it as human but it doesn't judge us back we recognize it as like personal enough that we can become attached to it, but we can look at it without fear of judgment, which is why there's so much, you know, perverse stuff that happens in anime and why there can even be so much violence that happens in anime. It's just adult enough that it can engage all that can appeal to adults, but it's not challenging enough in a, in a visual sense that I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of the word, but just not, it's 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 digestible in that sense is it's it, not like you're looking at a Renaissance painting. you look at something that your mind can easily take in all of at once Would it be fair to say then it 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 takes what is harsh about
1: the world and it softens it into a way that is palatable palatable emotionally uh and comforts the people who view it all depends on the anime um
0: okay. I think there's some of the one of the greatest ones which like. I'm, which is kind of a basic thing for me to mention, but which I think you would love was um, Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is like one of the held up as it's so one weird. Of the That's my middle name. <laughs> I can't believe this is all coming full circle. I know. Now it's Paul Neon Genesis Evangelion
1: Martin. Yeah. And, and boy, did that cause a stir at my confirmation. Your <laughs> certificate was like. Yeah.
0: Feet long. It was mul- multiple pages. Um, but the interesting thing with that is that I use the anime art form and body horror and Christianity as ways to comment on the genre and comment on mental illness at the same time. Like that show was one of the major things that spoke to me and thousands of other um, kids growing up, even in the U.S. and in Japan. Um, It's the show... I'll I'll, I'll give the the basic thing, because I could go on for hours about this show. But the basic premise is you have these kids who fly giant robots to save the world. I know they're not really robots, but over time, what starts off as a normal happy adventure starts taking more and more tolls on the kids both emotionally and physically and painfully and the question that comes up is like why would you want to save the world if every time you try and save it it only causes you more and more pain and the characters start falling into depression spirals and everyone starts having psychological breakdowns and so it's like an al-anon meeting pretty much it's a lot like an al-anon meeting Except with a lot more panty shots and a lot more <laughs> <laughs> fan service and people in tubes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's I love, and, and um, the interesting thing is like when you're a kid, that show goes from being totally normal fight the rope, you know, fight the bad guy of the week anime to weird, surreal art film nonsense. But at some point, because it keeps progressing into the weirdness, you're going to hit an episode that resonates with you okay. at some point on that line. What, I'm still, I, I, yeah, I, no still I still don't
1: feel uh,
0: <laughs> an understanding
1: illuminated uh, as to what the attraction is uh, for people who are crazy about it. Mm. Um, obviously, it's something visual because yeah. it's a specific visual style, and I guess I want to understand that first. What are some of the? Re- obviously, no one, yeah, no same group of people feel all the same way and like all the same things about it. But what are some of the the
0: reasons that different people like it visually? I think it's partially because it, it deals it, again, it, it deals with adult subject matter in a non challenging
1: way. In in what way do you mean non challenging?
0: And I mean visually like, non challenging. Yeah, well, there's a lot of sexual stuff in anime that would be horrifyingly gross if it was portrayed in a more Western style, there's like there's a popular genre called harem anime, which is like, oh, you have the one kid, and he finds himself having to live the summer in a boarding house surrounded by dozens of gorgeous, large breasted women of various personality types. And because the characters are so doll-like, doll-like is the word I've been looking for. Now I think I understand it. Now I think we're actually, that's the word I've been searching for, is that there's a certain doll like quality there's like a like their
1: eyes are kind of moist almost like they're childlike exactly kind of
0: childlike and innocent and non-threatening exactly which makes anime horror all the more messed up when you have the horror genre of like all those cute doll people and they're cutting each other up and you see the bizarrely realistically rendered flesh versus they're almost, yeah, you doll-like has been the word I've been looking for. And I think because of that, that's what attracts the the audience that it does and why some people don't take it seriously and it's why some people take it way too seriously. Um, it's actually interesting, in Evangelion, the notion of being a doll is a recurring theme that goes throughout the series. And, and what, what do you think it is about
1: doll-like qualities that draws people to it again obviously yeah. you c- it's just your experience and the people that you know and you've talked to but i i'd, I'd love some insight yeah. as to
0: the does it uh, I think the first anime, I guess I can only speak from my personal experience in that matter, but I remember the first time, I saw, the first anime that I saw that ever really appealed to me was Late Night on Adult Swim. Me and my friend stayed up late. Before that, we watched, like, they had the afternoon block on Cartoon Network, which was called Toonami, mm-hmm. which was like Dragon Ball Z, all the other, like, Saturday morning cartoon stuff, but on Adult Swim. Um, one of the big exports from Adult Swim was all of the edgier anime, stuff like Cowboy Bebop and Eva and all this other stuff. And the one that I saw, which is one of the lamest anime of all time, but at the time I watched it, the coolest thing on the goddamn planet was Inuyasha. And I remember watching it and just thinking like, oh, wow, wait, this is guy and he's fighting demons and there's blood everywhere. And it's like kind of creepy, but it's cool. And there's this is, this is awesome. Um, and that was sort of the mindset was like, it was easy. And I think it was also cause it was easy for me to read the D the, the characters were never too like overly complicated. The environment was always focused. You could tell what was going on in all the screens. And there was something very like, something very dynamic about that style that I didn't see in all the American cartoons, which were always trying to be like, you know, they were trying to be like Looney Tunes or like Dexter's Lab or something like that. This was like, oh, wait, this is a fantasy thing. This is like, this is cool. This is where all the adventure is. I hope this doesn't sound offensive. Oh, please offend. Um,
1: you know, one one of the uh, qualities people on the spectrum
0: uh, can have. Which do we want to rewind
1: and go back to the whole diagnose? We will. We'll we'll, we'll pick up on that in in your childhood and what it was like being a kid. Um, One of the things that they can struggle with is picking up on social cues. Mm -hmm. Is there in anime a simplification of emotions that makes it more easily digestible to people who find complex social
0: cues difficult. In my expertise as someone who is merely diagnosed and not a doctor and just living my life, totally. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely why anime has the appeal that it does in certain neuro cases and in certain Again, it's not everybody who's in, but it's such a um, amazing recurrent pattern that like in the internet's the it's the unspoken thing is like, "Oh, people with autism or Asperger's love anime." And I think that the interesting thing being there's, like, in that style, again, because their eyes are huge. The eyes take up, like, three-quarters of their face. You should or see some, their optometry bills. But, on tish. Yeah. <laughs> and the interesting thing also is, like, not just that, but the characters, there's a style called SD or super deformed, where, like, you know, you dump water on somebody, and rather than having a character, like, go over the head, their character turns into this even more flatter, more big-headed, cartoonier thing, ah, and reacting to that. And, you know, the characters often state the situations over and over again. Anime is very, in some cases, anime can be extremely repetitive, which repetition and patterns are a huge thing in the um, neuro or Aspie or autistic mindset is the love of seeing the situations play out again and again and again. And um, realizing all the rules and realizing... I remember, oh my God, um, I recently... Was one of the, I was on Netflix and we hang out with a friend. And we were just trying to find the worst anime possible, and we put on the Yu Gi Oh movie. And Yu Gi Oh is a card game, and they made a anime based off the card game. And we're watching this movie, and I'm watching it. And I'm like, this is just sixty minutes of some guy in blue hair explaining the rules of this overly complicated card game. No wonder why fourteen year old autistic me thought this was the greatest fucking show <laughs> on the planet. Oh, my God. Well, let's go back then to
1: when you were a kid and uh, social cues uh, and emotions were a big struggle uh, for you. Not that you don't struggle with any of it now, but. um, (laughs) okay. well, emotions, I mean, Uh, yeah, uh, when you told me that that you uh, had Asperger's, uh, we had been hanging out for, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes and
0: uh, I would have never guessed. In a weird way, like one of the joys of discovery... Like I, I, in high school, I adjusted a lot. And I always don't like to say I have Asperger's. I like to say I was diagnosed with Asperger's, mm-hmm. which is its own interesting bag. And I think I, I was reading Far From the Tree uh, recently, and there's a whole chapter on autism. And one of the interesting things that he mentioned is that being, Is that Andrew Solomon? Yeah, it's Andrew yeah. Solomon's book. And the thing that he says in that chapter, which is even just receiving the diagnosis, can be such a life changing and life altering thing. And it was a diagnosis that I grew up with, and I grew up surrounded by fellow people diagnosed by that. Um, How do you mean you were put in classes for people on the spectrum? I was put in, I was in a few specialized classes, I went to a few programs. I went to a few summer games, and my high school was one for kids who are all across the neuro spectrum. I went to a special education high school. Um, we like to call ourselves SPEDs. Which was, again, like the way people, part of my language, the way people identify as fag or the way people Mm -hmm. identify as queer. We love to identify ourselves as speds. My first animation projects, we did it under a name called Speds on a Plane Studios because Snakes on a Plane (laughs) was coming out. So there's a few cartoons out there called Speds on a Plane. Uh, So give me some snapshots from childhood
1: that that kind of highlight uh, what it was like uh, when, when you didn't have any coping skills and you didn't really understand what was happening or going
0: on. It was interesting. So I don't know how my definite early, early childhood was super foggy. Um, and I feel like you never know how much that is because I felt sensory overload all the time or how much of it was because of, um, of that's just what childhood is like. That's just, I'm going to quickly adjust this head for, for one second because yeah, yeah. it's digging into the side of my head a little yeah. bit. There we go. Um, and I never know how much of it's just growing up or how much of it was me in the mindset that I had as a kid. And, um, one of my earliest memories, the big thing that I went through as a kid was, um, what was called tomatis therapy. Now this is something that's kind of an autism Asperger's deep cut. There aren't a lot of people that talk about this, know about this, but because I had bad listening skills, because I was non-responsive, because, um, I remember one time after I was born, my mom held me and I actually broke her nose by headbutting it. Um, because wow. I lashed out that much. Yeah. Um which I have no memory of. And were you nonverbal until a certain age? I think I was. I remember I was visiting a bunch of different doctors, trying a bunch of different things. I wasn't medicated, but I went through tomatoes therapy. And tomatoes is where they they bring you to this little playground, this little room, and they put headphones on your head. And they put a little sweatband around the headphones so you don't take the headphones off. And you listen to classical music, or you listen to uh, Vivaldi, at two differing frequencies in your ear, and the thought being is that your brain is adjusting to hearing the different frequencies. So the way that my treatments went when I was doing Tomatis was they would put me there, I would play around in a playground for like like in this little indoor play space for thirty or forty minutes, and I had no idea this wasn't nor <laughs> this wasn't abnormal. Um, they even used to fly me to Baltimore. My parents used to fly me to Baltimore and back for these treatments, um, and then they would put you through a hearing test. So you would go into a room and they would, they would put uh, two different sets of headphones on. The first one would be a regular set of headphones and they would say, okay, we I'm going to play a noise. You need to tell me which headphone you hear it out of. And they would play and I have to say, it's the right, it's the left, it's louder, it's quieter, it's louder, it's quieter. There's one where they even kind of like this headset, they put, um, this little headphone that, uh, jams directly into your, ear bone or your cochlear mm-hmm. spot and it would vibrate and you'd have to say i hear it there or i hear it there i also had trouble i forgot so, so what's coming through one ear is different than the other ear yeah but it's not coming through your ears it's coming you rest it behind your ears but the other thing i was talking yes about, you okay. have to say if it's coming from the right or if it's coming from the left right. i also remember i couldn't look left or right i had to turn my head if i was looking left or right i couldn't do that um, and my de- in other words, you couldn't scan with your yeah, eyes. I couldn't left scan there. with my eyes. I would always turn my head. I was always looking straight ahead. Um, I had to, and I, w- I took different classes and different programming programs in order to be able to look my eyes left to right. And I remember there was like an eye chart, and if I did my eye exercises for thirty days, we got to go to Disneyland. Wow. Yeah, man. So what did uh, what was it called, Tomas? Tomatis therapy. Tomatis which- therapy. that that
1: what. What is the theory behind it? What did it accomplish? What is it supposed to accomplish? And
0: did it it's work a, for you? That's a, all great questions. So in theory, it's supposed to increase listening and recepting skills. It's supposed to remove that neural blockage that happens when you're communicating with people on the spectrum. That sort of um The way I always the the way I try and describe the autistic brain or the brain or what I remember of it, because, you know, who knows if I actually had it, who knows if it's real, what is autism? And I think those are important questions we should always be asking when you're dealing with people on the spectrum Um, is like it felt like my brain was on overdrive all the time it felt like I was receiving constant input and constant reception, just constant. So
1: like you were at a loud, exhausting party all the time, all
0: the time. And I didn't know what it was like to not be that. Right. So it was just sort of constantly going off in my head. There is, um, there was a, it was a show. I actually interned with this theater company for a while. Um, but there was this show that's done by the neo-futurist called too much light makes the baby go blind which was something that was said by an autistic child. And I actually always thought, like, oh, wait, that quote felt a lot. It's constant sensory stimulation, constant sensory. Visual, auditory, tactile. Um, Tactile especially, being touched, being not touched, which I think is one of the reasons why I I broke my mom's nose. Again, I don't know because so much of this feels in the past. So in theory, Tomatis helps you adjust... um, to different learning things. There's no, I don't believe there's any hard scientific evidence that it works or if it doesn't work. So it's the question of, did it save my life or did I just grow up and get older and grow out of some of the symptoms? And, and is the theory behind tomatoes to, um, help,
1: help you auditorily, but or also tactfully? Is it, is I think it rewiring it's more, your brain? Yeah, it's an
0: attempt to just try and rewire an open neural pathways. I see. It's, it's a lot of... It's possibly pseudoscience. There's no... There's sort of... You know, it's a very... Like, I almost want to say a cult. But it's not really... Not not a cult, but a cult. It's not a very well... Like, I've been trying to talk to people... Oh, trust before. me. I'll hear from people <laughs> when when... <laughs>
1: When this airs, if, uh, if there is uh, yeah. a, a lot of thoughts about their,
0: being I don't know. I know many other Aspies and autism people. I don't know anybody else who's been through Tomatis. In fact, I've only talked to one person, one psych person, who's known about it. And she says, wow, that was some crazy stuff, right? And I went, yeah, it was some crazy stuff. And, d- and that was kind of my childhood. And that was before I knew I, knew I was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. All of the therapies, all of that stuff, that was pre- I had Asperger's because I didn't know I had Asperger's. I was just going to Baltimore and going to get the get the little therapy treatments. <laughs> I was also an only child. I think that's another important thing to say. Was that I had no I had two older half brothers, but they were 20 years older than me, living on their own. I had no idea what normal was in terms of a home life. Um Not that in a bad way, I love my parents incredibly much, but I didn't realize, oh wait, not everybody goes to back and forth to Baltimore for therapy
1: and so, in talking to your parents later on, did they uh believe then that you were on the spectrum? had they been told you were on the spectrum yes
0: i they they were they recognized when I was being nonverbal and when I was being out there um I remember when they told me I was on the... They even used to think that I might not have been able to make it through middle school, and that I would have needed to have a private hand on deck. But I think once I started just getting into classes, like something in me kind of awakened, I started adjusting and talking to the other kids. Um, was that a conscious choice, or it just happened? I don't fucking know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just sort of happened. Like Again, to me, like I almost feel like it was a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation, where I don't even remember most of the stuff that I was doing when I was really, really like when I was really young and really, really spectrumy I don't even remember doing most of it. have your parents told you any stories, mainly the head bashing thing, mainly me looking at pictures, mainly me trying to piece together different things. What, what was the looking at pictures about? Oh, just me looking at different pictures of myself. Like I, and I still think I exhibit this now. I'm very self-conscious about it. Um, being afraid to look directly at the camera, um, having that glazed look in my eyes all the time. um, There were, you know, being detached. um, That's sort of how I felt about the whole thing. Like, hmm. It's really, it's again, it's kind of hard to put into words because I remember so little about it. It was that first, you know, year one year old to seven year old phase, which I, I don't know how some people remember that stuff super well. Cause I really, really don't have your parents shared any big leaps you made. I think so. I think the looking was a big one. The listening was a big one. Um, again, they used to just say how worried they were about me. I think it's always hard to come up with specific circumstances. Cause like, how do you demonstrate not responding all the big thing was like, I just didn't respond to a lot of things. You, you, how do they know that they just weren't boring? Because <laughs> they were very interesting people. <laughs> Let me tell you that. I can tell you some things about my parents. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's actually really interesting. I always had a huge connection to Tommy. Um the Who, the Who Rock Opera mm-hmm. Tommy. Because I think in, in a huge way, and there's a documentary that I love called Wizard Mode that totally explores that link. Because one of the big memories I always had when I was in, when we would stay in Baltimore, we would stay at a Holiday Inn and they had a Twilight Zone pinball machine in the basement. And I have such fond memories of that Twilight Zone pinball machine. And it was because of all the lights and all the sounds and all the noises. And like Tommy is all about this kid who's deaf, dumb, and blind totally sensory deprived, but once he's in front of a pinball machine, suddenly he can feel it. Suddenly he's there. And I think that there's a thing with that mechanical engagement that when, you're, uh, that when you interact with something and it responds so vividly and so clearly, and I think that's like where a lot of video game and autism culture intersect and a lot of anime and autism culture intersect and a lot of pinball and autism culture intersect is that feedback, is that vividness. It's something that kind of shocks you out of it.
1: Do you think there's something also comforting to somebody on the spectrum when they find
0: something where they understand the rules? I think it's comfort in a weird way you don't it's engagement. I didn't know what comfort was. Um it's such a huge satisfaction when you find something that you love. But it's also it's so hard cuz like it's almost like being emotionally or being emotionally like the way that I always describe Aspergers or autism or all of that stuff, which I will, by the way, get into the difference because it's actually really interesting, mm-hmm. um, is like it's like having an emotional allergy. That when you're in certain situations or in certain places, your your you're, instead of your sinuses, your mind just becomes so cluttered and overwhelmed that you don't really know how to deal with it or fully process it. In that motion, so sometimes either you just shut down or overact, and when you're like that your whole life, it's like trying to teach a blind person to see. Um, it's all, it also sounds like being around an abuser, you can never get away from. It's so uh, the it's all on the neuro spectrum. Like hearing your podcast and hearing a lot of people describe addiction, hearing a lot of people describe depression and OCD, it's all linked. And all of the, 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 there are so many shades, it's like, it's like a wine. There's so many different shades of, of depression and OCD combined into autism in its own way. I think the difference though, is that unlike all of the other ones, autism, really, it impairs your ability to communicate. And that's such a fucking catch 22. Um, because unlike people who who are depressed or who people who are OCD, they, they still have the ability to communicate and self-advocate versus autism. It hits you like right in the spot that lets you explain to people what Asperger's and autism is like. Yeah. It affects your self-advocacy. It affects that. It's such a... It's, Depression
1: can do that too because sometimes yeah. the most difficult thing to do is to describe how you are feeling <laughs> when you're depressed because uh, you don't trust your own... Uh, judgment you mm-hmm. don't you you don 't know where reality is you 're exhausted you 're confused, and you want to
0: give up yeah, the weird thing is also like with depression, you still have context you can still even though you won 't feel it, you do know what it was like pre depression not not like, exactly yes. with asperger 's or autism, you could be like that your whole life mm-hmm. um, and it 's so hard to gain insight. there was somebody who was, I don't, you know, I don't remember if this is actually true or not, but who was doing, trying to do research with psychedelic mushrooms or psychedelics and people on the neurospectrum. And I personally think that that's brilliant, um, because it's such a, a cloying mindset. It's such a trap because it's unlike most traps. It's a pretty, the, the walls are pretty thin, but there's just no exit. You're just there. And that's what your whole life was, was that bubble. Um, so why would the mushroom thing be? Cause it can snap you out of that thought process. I see. Um, at least that was, an, it, it, yeah. Temporarily. Temporarily. Yeah. But yeah. as long as you gain that insight, I as see. long as you realize there is a spot where the grass can be greener, as long as you realize or different or different. Um, I think that's vital. I think that's, um, I remember when I finally, it was in third grade, I, I went through a period in kindergarten doing great first grade. All of a sudden everybody stopped talking to me. Really? <laughs> yeah. Or at least i thought everybody stopped talking to me i feel like in a lot of cases with my past or when you look at it, you have to look at yourself as kind of an unreliable narrator in some cases because you never know how much of that was aspie brain how much of that was you just perceiving it as a kid how much of that was all that but i remember in first grade that's when social isolation started hitting mm-hmm. and i remember or,
1: or when it just wasn't about you sometimes yeah, when it was
0: all of a sudden, <laughs> wait it's not about me. um
1: <laughs> Oh, they hate me. No, they're no. busy thinking about themselves. But no, I'm I'm not discounting what what, what
0: happened to you. Yeah, and not, not that all of them are fine. I'm actually still great with a lot. Of, I went to a, a private middle school, like middle elementary school. So I spent like nine years with all these people, and I still stay in touch with a lot of them. So, you know, a lot of that was just like, oh, wait, we were kids, and we were all still figuring out stuff. Um, but I am... Um, but I remember they stopped time me and I went home to my, to my dad and then at one point my dad sat me down and he said, you know, well, I'm telling you, you have something called Asperger's. And I remember earlier we were reading All Kinds of Minds, which I'm not sure. Is that a book that's been brought up on this podcast I at don't all? think so. So All Kinds of Minds was a way of explaining to kids about neurotypical stuff. And we had a mandatory reading of it, and they had the one kid who had ADHD. And it was describing what it was like for the ADHD kid in school and the one kid who was slightly bipolar and describing what it was like for the slightly bipolar kid in school. And I always thought I totally feel like this ADHD kid. And I kept saying, Hey dad, I think I have ADHD. And he's like, no, 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 no. You have Asperger's, which looking back, I probably did have ADHD more than Asperger's. And as we said, it's all kind of interconnected as, you know, there is a a strain of ADHD in autism behavior. It all overlaps. It all overlaps.
1: Um, One of the things that's so fascinating, challenging, frustrating. Uh, Yeah is mental illness trauma <laughs> addiction you know and then within mental illness and, and neuro atypical stuff exactly it, it, there's so much overlap
0: yeah it's crazy man um and I remember that we had, which in a weird way, it was, which is one of the worst things that you can freaking do. But I at the time didn't realize it was a terrible idea. It was like, you know, we're going to sit Luke in front of the whole class. And we're going to explain to him, Luke has Asperger's syndrome. So that is why you need to understand and be friends with him. And they did that and absolutely nothing changed. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone was still not talking to me. And everyone. So, so you were raised in every town in America. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I, was, I, I should also say I was raised in Massachusetts. Yeah. Um Swamp Scott. Very lucky. Very. Isn't that where Jamie Denbo is, is from? Who's Jamie Denbo? Oh,
1: she's brilliant. She's been a guest on the show. She uh, does uh, uh, Rona and Beverly. Uh, they're uh, characters that are all, old Jewish women. Uh, so not the like the stereotype of the old Jewish, they're yeah. they're older Bostonian uh, Jewish women, and they're just their personalities
0: are so well defined. But uh, yeah, Jamie's, Ron and Beverly, Ronna and Beverly, Ronna and Beverly. Yeah. I may have heard whispers of that because that's definitely yes. like they have a podcast,
1: up. they perform live. But yeah, Jamie's been a guest on this show, and I'm almost positive that's where she's from because I know they mention it. Um, so what is uh, you were you mentioned that you would like to talk about the difference between Asperger's and autism and All you know, of that in general stuff.
0: Yeah. So here's the interesting thing that I just found out recently. So the the way that used to work, Asperger's was kind of like the Catholicism to autism's Christianity, where it was basically the same thing, but with a slight few differences, people with Asperger's were slightly more, as opposed to autism, autism comes from the Latin root auto, which means self, self-driven. Autism people are with are defined by being isolated, by being withheld, by not being social. Asperger's was named after a German scientist who may or may not have been a Nazi, mm-hmm. um, but was noticing a similar behavior pattern with autism, but in a select group of kids, um, where they were much more social, but they were blunt. They were socially like trying to think of the words for it, like you know they were they were unfiltered it's like they were all from new york it was like they were all from new york except they didn't think they were better than you <laughs> <laughs> I, lived on the, I would hate to grow up in new york man those kids don't have <laughs> freaking childhoods yeah. oh my god uh so they, and here's the interest. So the term Asperger's syndrome didn't really come about again until the n- mid n- to the early nineties, early nineties was when people started trying to use Asperger's syndrome as a way to differentiate from autism. And, uh, I was part of a whole field of kids back in the early nineties that were diagnosed as Asperger's, um, which the interesting thing being, I just found out that Asperger's just got removed from the DSM. Um, It was in the DSM until 2013, where it's now just considered a subsection of symptoms under autism for simplicity's sake. So how real is Asperger's when it's not even in the DSM anymore? It's a word that's just sort of become this like this floating term. Well, in my mind, whenever I hear
1: it, and I'm not saying this is right, I always think, oh, it's a person with some autism
0: that has some social functioning ability that's the general gist of it and i guess that's what it means now but it's kind of it's it's a word that's like the meaning is now just sort of in the, in the social yeah. sphere it's not an actual hard definition anymore and is it a stereotype
1: that they are generally good at math um yes they uh are more comfortable in the intellectual realm than the emotional
0: realm? The Rain Man... There there are two stereotypes that I feel like have plagued the Aspie or autism community. And there's the the Rain Man complex and the Precious Little Aspie stereotype. Mm. And the Precious Little Aspie stereotype, I think, is the most detrimental fucking thing on the planet. Um, When you're dealing with Rain Man, you know, know, I know people who are like that, who have some gifts in mathematics. I also know people who are on the autism spectrum who are not particularly good at anything. Mm-hmm. They don't have their special superpower to compensate for their lack of, uh, of social tact. There are the people out there that happen to be more gifted in music. There are people there that happen to have more perfect pitch. It's, there's really like the, the, the two things that I've always found in dealing with autism that are that, exist in people. You know, I can always tell when someone's on the spectrum or something like that, because it's, there's no ever concrete thing. You just have mm-hmm. to tell by the way a person interacts by how they're dealing with this situation. But the two key qualities I've always found, which I think are the most important to focus on are pure emotional honesty. And it's that being honest all the time. And it's that not holding back. That's beautiful, but at the same time, so harmful and detrimental to the person who has it because the
1: the timing or the the expression
0: of it May lacked nuance. Exactly, they just tell it to you like it is. When they're feeling bad, they'll let you know. When they are not feeling bad, they'll not do that. And their emotions, like there's this big thing about like, oh, autism people don't feel, and it's like sometimes it's on the contrary, and they're just feeling constantly, yeah. and they're just constantly vibrating. They constantly have to let it out, and they don't know any other way to do that.
1: That's funny because I've never thought that about people with autism. Yeah, uh, I have always thought the contrary that that it's it's uh inundating
0: yeah it's it's like it's it's less like you're hearing a symphony and more like you're hearing one strong note over and over and over again um and it's one you know it's 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 a few fixations versus as opposed to like being muted i see and everybody's going isn't that a great counter melody (laughs) you're like what what (laughs) oh my god no um and that's really, I think it's just being unfiltered and being honest, which is the problem being when you're in social situations, you know, you yourself know that when you're dealing with your mental illness, there's a time and a place to be open about it. Yes. There's a time and a, like when you're in a job interview, you can't all of a sudden say like, oh, I, I had diarrhea this morning versus, which is a, which could be a totally honest fact, which could very well be the truth. Should not bring that up in a job interview. And sometimes you're just totally compelled to do that if you're severely, on the spectrum, which leads to that humiliation, yeah. which leads to that you being controlled by your behavior, by your emotions, rather than you controlling your emotions.
1: And is there, let's say the person does say that in the job interview, do they immediately sense that that was a mistake? Or do they
0: maybe never realize that that was a mistake? Maybe never. Maybe never. There, there's people who don't quite, which is always so tricky, is there are people who just do not, um, comprehend the consequences of their actions. And that's not trying to say an, oh, this person is stupid type thing. It's or fun. or amoral. Or amoral. Amorality in autism is such uh, a, a, a interesting catch point, too. Like, not to get too dark, but there was in the infamous thing where Adam Lanza, the school shooter, um, he was on the spectrum, too. And so the people who were you know, who are defending people with autism said, no, people with autism are, are non violent. And then there was people who were, you know, using the counter cases, but it's like, we need to keep, um, so, you know, we need to, we still need to investigate. And it's a mixture of both. It's remembering that they're people. Um, people with autism are just as capable of committing violence as people who aren't autistic. Right. And it shouldn't be held up as some golden stereotype or some golden rule of what they, you know, not to get too dark. They're people we are people and we're all capable of behaving to the most depraved acts and the most you know, kindness and decency. And I think it's interesting with autism because I think it's just that a lot of people haven't been taught how to deal with. Um, there was, so have you killed people? Um, not to my knowledge. (laughs) Maybe that happened when I was one through seven. Um, and I think it's something just to, I think it's so hard because some of the people that I've known with autism are some of the kindest, sweetest people, but they're some of the most frustrated people, and I think they're frustrated because they aren't being understood. Um, which- is funny because that's the thing
1: that fucks with all of us? Oh, is we
0: just want to be seen, felt, heard, validated, understood, yeah, feel connected. Autism. Is without a doubt, and I'm and I'm going to be totally of all the minority groups out there, autism is the most exploited and shafted um, type in pop culture, in media, in advocacy. There isn't an autistic network that exists the way... Was, no, not to say that they are more oppressed or they are less oppressed, because that's not the case at all. I'm saying the least properly represented. Right. That if you Google autism, the there, first... There, there's no fight back. There's no fight back, because we all... Because it, it, it hit us in, a, in the one... It affects in the one spot that controls the ability to advocate and organize. It's getting blinded. <laughs> Yeah. Um, in that one spot the when you search autism, the first thing that pops up is Autism Speaks, which is anybody who's on the spectrum or dealt with that can tell you are the fucking worst. Talk about it. Autism Speaks is basically the most visible and powerful autism lobby, but it's also basically a eugenics group. They're trying to eliminate... They look at all the autistic behaviors as something caustic. To as be something eradicated. Harmful, something to be eradicated. Which You wouldn't say that about people with depression. You wouldn't say that about people... With OCD you'd say we need to help people manage, we need to help people adjust you don 't need to say we need to eliminate this yeah. um, and that they're the, they 're the big guys they 're the most you see billboards for them, you see Home Depot selling blue light for them, and no one 's outraged about it so they they look at it like cancer they look at it like cancer um, and they get the and they get the money like they have so and there 's all sorts of other shady stuff evolved around them, but because there isn 't a straight up You know, there isn't an NAACP of autism. There isn't that straight up thing. And the other interesting thing that I've always found is like when I say autism or Asperger's, um, autism and Asperger culture makes people cringe. When you mention autism or when you mention Asperger's, the first thing that always happens is people kind of mm, shudder or clam up a little bit because they're like, oh boy, we better brace ourselves for that. When you think about films or culture things that deal with autism or Asperger's, it's this same maudlin type oh the precious little Aspie trope look at this precious little Aspie it's Rain Man Um, it's you know I'm also going to say Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory (laughs) who for the love of God let's just call a a blank a blank and say that Sheldon is clearly playing off of those Aspie tropes in a lot of ways Um, and there isn't like and I kept thinking like how come there aren't autistic writers and autistic people the way they're the, the way that there are Um, gay performers and gay writers, the way that there are black performers and black writers or Asian writers. Why are autism or Aspie writers not on the same stage as everybody else? And I realized, A, because part of it revolves around a diagnosis versus an actual mindset. Because again, what is autism? What is Asperger's? Mm -hmm. Um, B, there aren't programs set in place to help people express that. It's only, as I said, the Aspie boom was in the 90s. It still hasn't permeated into the culture the way most other disorders or, or disabilities quite have. It's still, as long as it's been around, it's still a really recent phenomenon. And all of the adorable kids who had special needs troubles are now becoming adults. And they're now starting to find their place integrated in society. <laughs> I don't, I, I nervous laugh a lot. So (laughs) if you sometimes hear me laugh, I just think sometimes, Oh my God, this whole stuff, it's, it's so, it's all crazy, man. It's all pretty ridiculous. So what are, we've touched on some of them
1: already, but what are some of the myths about, uh, autism
0: and Asperger's that we haven't covered? That's a good question. I think the, um, I think that one of the biggest things
1: about autism. Or the things that have been stereotyped as well, that while there might be a kernel of
0: truth in some, it's... I think the whole good at mathematics thing is weird. I know that there's a lot of focus on shapes and patterns for some people. Um, It exists in some kids more than others. It can exist from as wide a variety of different things. You know, I know some... You know, cartoons was a very universal language among my friends. But... um, Shaking I notice is only in really 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 severe cases. That's only in in super super high things. Um, I think just like oh I think I think this is like against the adorable little aspie trope, the friendly yet curmudgeonly thing where I'm like you need to look at them less like people with autism, more like people and people that are strong in certain areas and weak in other ones, and. You know, there are people with autism that are friendly and people with autism that aren't friendly. And there are some, you know, there are some people I know who with autism who are assholes and some people who are actually really, really kind, but just fall into these certain blunt areas every so often. And I think it's remembering that there is that whole morality spectrum. It's not just like an oh, all people with autism are good or all people with autism are bad. That they're, that it's just as nuanced as any other type of like you know you know assholes who are depressed and assholes who mm-hmm. are recovering alcoholics. Yeah. I think that's kind of the big thing is that we're we're adults. Um, and yeah, there's some people with autism that that can date and some people who really really can't. And I think that's another interesting thing is cause romance is hard enough. Um, when you're not socially impaired, but when you have that little detriment, it becomes this whole other crazy minefield that becomes the trial and error process from hell. I think, I think just the biggest misconception and I, and I, you know, I'll go on the record saying saying is I think that's not the people with autism that have the problem. I think it's just the fact that the world, um, that's actually what my tattoo is about right here on my arm. Um, <laughs>
1: it says gnome g-n-o-m-e sane question mark
0: yes um gnome sane was uh as i kind of mentioned before um it's this company the the neo-futurists or the new york neo-futurists they do this show um where they do 30 short plays in 60 minutes but the key thing with each of these short plays they're each only like two minutes to one minute long they're almost more like like bits or pieces Mm -hmm. than full plays is that they all have to be truthful it's not fiction it's not that and there is this um there was this one neo joey rislow shout out to joey rislow who is one of the finest people on the planet um also one of the biggest bastards but one of the finest people on the planet he did uh when this play was called they put up a bunch of title cards on the stage um and all of these title cards had nonsense written on them like, you know, you're reading it and it's like, what the hell is he saying? And when he pointed to each one, it's spelt out phonetically. My son is autistic. But it was said, in my son. But when you say it mm-hmm. out loud, it makes total sense. Mm. And I was watched this play with my dad, who was my best friend and biggest autism supporter in the audience. And the moral of that play, because uh, Joey's son, uh, Avery is, is on the spectrum. He's autistic. And it's been also great. Cause I met Avery since then. He's, Totally rad dude loves They Might mm-hmm. Be Giants and oh, I love they might and, be giants great best. They Might Be Giants and trains and MTA systems, and he's just he's a great dude. And the moral of the poem, this sort of spoken word piece, was that we live in a world that's accommodated to the needs of the neurotypical, that's not meant for people like Avery to understand and function. And we need to remember that, that for people that are on the spectrum who are still just people, that they're in our environment. They're in the environment of the people that, that are able to socialize normally and that don't understand, wait, we could have a visitor from somebody who thinks differently, from somebody who acts mm-hmm. differently than us. And somebody who we can still connect to and relate to and, and be friends with. But it's, it's a world that's accommodated for their needs and not ours if that makes sense. And that always makes total sense.
1: And it's, I think a lot of times, um, and I know I'm guilty of this is I make the mistake of assuming everybody is viewing things the way I do. (laughs) that they have the same boundaries I do, uh, that they have the same interests that I do. And of course, when I stop and think about it, I'm like, you fucking idiot. That's ridiculous. (laughs) But when it's kind of your default, uh, it 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 can get you in trouble, and you can really
0: become dismissive of other uh, other people's uh, realities. I think there was a there was a great moment on a on an old episode of WTF. I'm trying to remember where I think Mark was just like talking. It was like talking about little Mark. The episode remembering. Wait, not everybody has a little Mark. Not everybody <laughs> is this fucked up. Wait a second. Yeah, and that's. Always a weird thing to think like, oh wait, there are normal people out there. There are people. There are not too many normal people out yeah. there. But so, uh, talk about if if there's uh,
1: any kind of uh, things that we didn't touch on in talking about con culture, uh, convention culture. Yeah. Um, what are some
0: some things that you'd like to uh, talk about? I think the big thing to mention about con culture, which the thing that when I when I made this. Uh, I like to look at it as a film, even though it's an episodic film. And even though it's technically a web series, I look at it as a film. Um, and I made it because at the, at the time I made it, um, uh, my dad recently passed Mm -hmm. and I was in a big emotional spiral and I didn't know who I was. And I remember the last time that I really, really knew who I was was when I was in high school and I was still very normal and I loved anime and to me, that was the last time I was like, why did I feel so emotionally connected to all of that? And why did it divorce right now? And when I kept thinking of like, like what are the things that people don't talk about? What were the things I experienced in my life? What were all of that? And I was remembering like when I went to high when I was in high school, me and all of my fellow friends from my said special education school, like we went to conventions and we all would group up and you know, going on that con trip together, we met like-minded people. The second we got to the convention, like, um, like we made friends, we made mutual interests, we made mutual stuff. And we also, on the way there, we had fights, we had emotional breakdowns. And to me, like that was, you know, where most coming of age stories were like, Oh, then they were on the baseball team or they went on a walk in the woods. And no, my coming of age happened going to conventions. And I thought like, why? Like when I, the cool thing about film, is that it's a very... When you're working in a film versus a movie, and to be pretentious, like I feel like a film is a movie that attempts to convey emotion rather than just convey a plot. Mm -hmm. Um, And the crazy thing is when, even though we're still not that popular, but showing it to people and having people come up and saying, this captured what it felt like to be with my friends. This is one of the few things that understood my bipolar. Um, This is one of the few things that like... And the, the first comment that we got on our YouTube channel... Is this is the most autistic thing I have ever seen, <laughs> <laughs> which I took as the highest form of flattery. Cause like, and the cool thing is we don't say autism, we don't say Asperger's. We don't, I, I specifically didn't want to use any word that did that. Um, even though like it's not portrayed in a positive or even necessarily politically correct light. In some cases, I thought the important thing was to show a neuro narrative where these characters are on their own, where it's not about like, Oh, the poor person or the poor thing. I think the biggest misconception about people with Asperger's or people with autism is that they go through it alone. Um, I didn't, I, I went to different groups. I met fellow um, autistic people. I met fellow people with bipolar disorder. Um, I went through, uh, yeah, like you don't go through it alone. You meet a whole What groups did you go through? Um, Well, I think one of the big ones, what is arguably the most famous one was uh, Spotlight, um, which was an improv program and a comedy troupe that came out of there, Asperger's R Us, um, who I I went to the Spotlight program at the same time as they did, but they um, they were performing in Boston. They recently had a, a documentary that got produced by the Duplass Brothers that premiered on Netflix and screened at South By. Um, and so they're, they're touring right now as a, all Asperger's diagnosed comedy troupe. Mm. And they definitely, they do very surreal comedy. I think that's the other big thing is the, the people with autism. That, that's the stupidest fucking thing. The people with autism don't understand comedy. People with autism can be some of the sharpest people that I know. And they can also be some of the brutalist people that I know. It's never like, Oh, I took that joke literally, or I uh, did. It's, it's not like that at all. Um, two, two things. Um, yes and I will I, I uh, I I'll get back to convention culture in a yes, second. Yes,
1: I want to know what some moments are when you went to that first convention and you saw yourself mirrored for lack of a uh, of a better word. And getting back to the uh, gnome saying, yes. was that a, a takeoff on, you know what I'm saying?
0: Yes. Okay. That's so, what the, those were the last two words of the poem. Or okay, gnome that's sane. what I figured. Whereas yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I skipped over that part yeah, <laughs> explaining okay. the poem. Um, and the great thing I love about it is like, oh, wait, it's a tattoo that you can just kind of appreciate at face value and not know the yeah. deeper meaning right. behind it. Um, so the con culture moment, the first one where I felt like reached by a con um, oh God, it, it's interesting because the, 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 the film is so it's, it's not autobiographical, but it is biographical. Like I took the emotions, I took the moments, but I didn't portray them as they happened. Um, but I remember well, the first convention I ever went to and it was right after spirited away came out in theaters and, um, what was spirited away? Oh, you don't fucking shit, Paul. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you two anime that you have to watch. They're okay. movies. They're movies. They're okay. animated movies. They're two of the best movies ever made. Okay. Like by and, um And they're Studio Ghibli. Studio Ghibli is like the Pixar of anime. Okay. They make all the really, really good stuff. And they're, they're, in my opinion, two best films are Spirited Away, which is sort of like a modern day take on Alice in Wonderland about this girl who you'll, you'll see. It's it's okay. perfect. It's a perfect movie. Okay. And the other one is Princess Mononoke, okay. which is this animated epic about this guy and this girl raised by wolves and this town and this forest god and it's just the friggin' best okay that was the movie that was the movie that tro- like warped my mind because i it came the english tra- the english version of it came out when i was like seven and i watched it in theaters and it was the first cartoon i watched it was just violent there's some insane moments of violence and weirdness in princess mononoke and i was like at first like a lot of autistic like in a weird way like i think one of the things I used to be super duper sensitive, that type of stuff that first I was like shocked by the level of violence. It's like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh wait, this is kind of cool. What the hell happens next? And I think I needed that sort of in these, those initial moments of shock to try and get me out of that things. I remember another thing was like, I only ate hot dogs. Um, which was weird because I didn't realize until I had a hamburger for the first time in my life that I didn't like hot dogs. <laughs>
1: and then, oh my
0: God. What a, what a great kind of metaphor for, uh, having autism. It's kind of weird, man. And again, it's only, I can only st- say to my case, it's so hard to like generalize about right. what that whole experience is. But I feel, yeah, it was just one moment where one day I was just finally welled up and I had a hamburger and I was like, Oh wow, this is, this is good. (laughs) This is pretty darn good. I, for some reason was so terrified and scared of having hamburgers before all that. It's funny.
1: I didn't know that what I had experienced was depression until it lifted. Yeah. And then I was like, Oh my God. (laughs) I, I suddenly understood. I could see how somebody could enjoy Christmas. I could see how somebody could, uh,
0: laugh easily. The exact same thing happened with me and having fun, yeah um, and this was a huge, huge moment for me it was like i didn't under i took i didn't realize I was taking everything totally seriously, but I took everything totally seriously and i was I was always frustrated when I lost and I was i was you know I spent most of my youth just completely frustrated um, and I just thought one day it was like, what if only I could just do something and you're not care about it, and just goof around and be silly and... I, I always, oh, wait, that's what having fun is. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the big thing. That's what all the songs... That's what Barney... Oh, fuck, that's fun. Oh, wow. All that stuff. That was games. Oh, those were games. <laughs> it was supposed to be fun. We weren't supposed to be taking it serious. Oh. Um, I had a friend with OCD who had a similar breakthrough one day. Um, he always came to school. Um, he used to have, his OCD used to be so severe. He used to have to carry, uh, towels in Ziploc bags in order to try and, and, and stay clean. And he would always Purell his hands mm-hmm. to the point where that wasn't healthy. And then just one day he came in the car. And he was like, you think I might've been overkill when I was <laughs> putting, <laughs> I, I was, just, yeah, that was pretty ridiculous. Wasn't it? Well, yes, it was, yes, it was. Um, well, thank you so much for for uh,
1: sharing about all this stuff. I, I yeah. feel like I uh, understand uh, a lot of the, the stuff more, and I think I'm going to give anime another shot.
0: Don't! It's a lot of it's garbage. There's well, a lot of terrible anime. Here, here
1: is what I would love for you to do. Yes, and we'll put this under the show notes for this episode is make a list oh boy. for people who have never tried anime and maybe just a brief <laughs> sentence or two about each one kind of, you know, oh this one's kind of uh,
0: you know I will. I will be your, Sweet. your. This
1: one's dark and violent.
0: This your one's, anime sommelier. Yes, You're, I will. I will. I will gladly and 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 shamefully apply. That would be great. I'm going to get that tattoo right now. Anime sommelier. sommelier. Freaking yeah. do it and get yeah. like a big bottle with like a, a hot busty cat girl on the. Perfect. There we go. Uh, Luke Palmer, thank you. Your thing is called cool. uh, "To Kawaii for Comfort. Absolutely. There's, there's one thing I would love to share mm-hmm. before completely logging off because mm-hmm. it was, um, I, I, I always thought about this when it came to your show, and it was the moment where I finally understood mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was because of my dad, and it was because uh, one of the girls who I, one of the first girls I ever had a crush on, um, had was dealing with bipolar and depression. And I didn't really understand that, that she, I took, I internalized a lot of it when I was like, Oh, why doesn't she like me? Is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with me? And there was a thing where I didn't realize we were both dealing with some crazy emotional things. And then one day when we were driving in the car, um, my dad, you know, we were talking about my dad, my dad says, you know, it was a lot, you know, what it's exactly like, it's exactly like that Mel Brooks joke. And the one thing that I always try when I'm explaining mental illness or explaining any of that, I go back to this Mel Brooks joke from the 2,000-year-old man. Mm-hmm. In one of the 2,000-year-old man interviews, um, Mel Brooks is playing uh, Dr. Haldanish and Carl Reiner's interviewing him. And it turns out he's not actually a doctor. He's a docker. He's just a guy who works at the docs. Mm-hmm. And he, he talks to the doctor, and he goes, well, doctor, have you ever, have you ever cured anybody? And he goes, yes, oh, yeah, I, cured, I cured this one lady. <laughs> I did it her name was Bernice and all Bernice would do is sit around the house and she would tear paper and that's it that's all she would do is just sit around the house and tear paper and Carl goes that's fascinating how How did you cure her how did you do it and he just goes well I walked up I gave her a little smack on the head and I said don't tear paper <laughs> don't don't tear paper don't do that don't tear paper And it's realizing if it was as simple as just smacking on the head and saying, don't tear paper, it would be. (laughs) And that that's the catch is remembering that these repetitive behaviors, these issues, they're, they're locked behind something that's just deep and embedded and unfathomable. And there's never anything simple about it. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for wrapping me on, Paul. This was, this was a delight and an honor.
1: My pleasure, Luke. Thanks. What a nice guy. Um, I just love episodes where uh I learn tons of new stuff and and meet nice people. It's one of the great things about doing this uh this job. Uh it doesn't feel like a job though. It feels more like a lifestyle. Um I got some shit from a listener um for uh talking about crystals uh last week. The the email just said, "Really, Paul? Crystals?" question mark. Um I'm not saying they were... Oh, by the way, I started eating ice cream after the second night. So um, if they were doing anything, uh, they wore off. Uh, There's a couple of different ways you can support the show if you feel so inclined. um, You can support us financially by making a one-time donation through PayPal. uh, Or my favorite, you can become a monthly donor through Patreon. Patreon. Uh, for as little as a dollar a month, you can um, be- become a donor, and it uh, with Patreon. I'm able to give you guys occasional bonus stuff or little things from my life. Like right now, there's a just uh, I put up a team photo of my uh, one of my hockey teams. We won the championship uh, a week or so ago, and uh, so I put the team photo up there with just uh, some words about who the guys are and how long I've known them for, and etc. Uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Um, and then something I'm going to do um, shortly, this is so cool, at least to me it is. Yeah, go ahead and minimize something nice in your life, Paul. Uh, I, as I've shared, I moved. And so I was still unpacking some stuff. And I came across a journal that I had written in 2011. And I was like, wait, 2011? That's the year I started the podcast. And I went back and I have journal entries of me wanting to start a podcast and what my thoughts are and as I'm getting started doing it. And uh, there wasn't a ton of them, but it was it was really cool. And so that's something I think I'm going to uh, record uh, for uh, Patreon uh, subscribers. Uh, how else can you help the show? You can help us by... We can't use Amazon anymore, but you can... Um, You can help us non-financially by going to iTunes and writing a good review, um, giving us a good rating. That boosts our ranking and brings more people to the show. If you've never written a review for this show on iTunes, please go do that. That would help. Spreading the word through social media about the podcast is is uh, great. And, uh, oh, one more uh, financial way that you can help us is you can buy a T-shirt. We have uh, a bunch of really cool T-shirts. Some are, are like the show logo. Other ones are, uh, one is a picture of uh, my late dog, uh, Herbert. It says St. Herbert, and it's one of his, uh, his cutest pictures. Um, and then just some sayings from the show and stuff like that. So, yeah, go check that out. I want to give some love to our sponsor, Quip. Uh, I think you know that teeth are important, right? They help you open bottles. (laughs) They, uh, if you're looking to hurt the inside of your cheek and be reminded that you're clumsy, they're hugely important. Uh, they provide a place, uh, for your food and your braces to rendezvous. Uh, but seriously, uh, most of us don't know how to brush our teeth right and a great way to start is with the Quip toothbrush. They sent me one, and I love it. It's uh, only twenty-five bucks, and it has great vibration in it. It uh, has a timer feature, so um, you can it. It goes thirty seconds, and then it'll just turn off for a second. Another thirty seconds. It does that for two minutes because that's the length of time you're supposed to brush your teeth for. But it's really cool design. It looks like it was designed by Steve Jobs without all the yelling. And, uh, yeah, it's cool. You can subscribe and get new brush heads on a three month plan for just five bucks, but check it out. I think you'll, you'll like it. Uh, Time magazine said it's one of the best inventions of 2017. On and on and on and on. And right now go to getquip.com slash mental to get your first refill pack free with a quip. Electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com/mental. That's g-e-t-q-u-i-p.com/mental. All right, let's. I had a joke written here that I forgot to do. Um, uh, talking about how how the uh, design uh, how it's elegant. And then uh, I don't know if you can call the toothbrush elegant. Uh, if you haven't seen it exit a town car. <laughs> I like that joke. I had to get it in there. Um, these are some surveys. This one is... Oh, I didn't want to read that one right now. Hold on one second. I've never used the word discombobulated, but right now... I think that's the appropriate word. Somehow these surveys got out of order and uh, I'm out of order. You're out of order. All right, here we go. This is an awful moment filled out by uh, Bay and she writes, I went to my mother's room to wake her up. She was already half awake and wanted me to come hug her as I absorbed all the temporary love from her hug. What a great phrase, temporary love. She said, I had a dream about you and, um, I was laying half beside her uh, while still hugging, and I asked her what her dream was about. She then gently grabbed my neck from behind and pushed her fingers down and then said, In my dream, I was very mad at you, so I choked you twice until you were dead. She then kissed me on my cheek and got up. I think it sounds like you have a terrific relationship. It sounds like there's a lot of consistency and she's able to have an objective view of the parent-child relationship. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Now I Know How Joan of Arc Felt. And uh, he writes, uh, 12 is the most awfulsome age. Everything awful and awesome happens when you are 12. When I was 12, the Phillies won the World Series and the Eagles went to the Super Bowl, both peaks of sports fandom. Uh, That's uh, the two... For those of you who aren't into sports, those are two big. uh, uh, One is a baseball team, the other is a football team in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, I danced with a girl, and I got suspended from school for fighting multiple times. Oh, and I was raped by the cousin I idolized, the one who taught me to love baseball and football and everything that made being 12 worthwhile. I'm almost 50, and I still both love him and hate him. Wow. That is... Traumatized by his cousin and the Eagles. Now, there, there, sh- there should be some joke in there about Dick Vermeil, but he was the coach of the Eagles. I think he was the coach uh, during that time when they went to the Super Bowl. Anyway, thank you for sharing that. And that actually reminded me that when I first started making my living as a professional stand-up, the two people that came to see me the most often, other than fellow comics, uh, were my mom, who you know, um, stuff that happened between us, and uh, the guy who used to live next door to us, uh, who molested me. (laughs) But hey, I sell tickets. Tickets are tickets. And then when I say that, I feel like I'm exaggerating. I'm making too big of a deal of it. And if I was talking to myself objectively i would say stop minimizing it what happened to you is valid but because it's me i wash myself in shame and guilt and doubt by the way if you're going to do that always wash the shame first because then the doubt sticks better it's almost like a talcum if you apply doubt correctly it will hang in your shoulder area for a good half day before it makes its way down to your navel this is a shame and secret survey filled out by survey taker one, two, three, four, five. She is gay in her twenties, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, yes. And I never reported it. Uh, if you're, uh, repeated sexual contact, uh, touching slash groping and inappropriate comments from my mother's boyfriend. Took places from ages 11 to 13. Told my mother when I discovered that they were about to break up, but because it was not rape, it was never reported. Um, she's been emotionally abused, but doesn't specify. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, abusers can be kind, appear vulnerable, and needing help. Um, darkest thoughts. I fear that I am secretly evil. That's an interesting one because if you, if you, first of all, I'm not a fan of the word evil. I I kind of prefer uh, the word um, healthy or unhealthy um, because people who do bad things um, can often heal or learn coping mechanisms to help them function better. But anyway, about the generally people who worry about what kind of an impact they're having on other people are not the kind of people that are leaving uh, a tornado uh, mark in their wake. It's usually the people that don't even consider what they're doing to other people or what their morality is. Uh, darkest secrets. I am still unsure whether I graduated from college. My family believes that I did. That's interesting because... That seems like something you would remember, but I have a terrible memory, and um, yeah, that uh, that has to be really fucking disconcerting. Uh, she's uncomfortable sharing uh, what her sexual fantasies are. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to confront my extremely controlling stepmother and emotionally absent father, uh, and I ha- I never have ever. What if anything do you wish for to have an empty head? That's one of the reasons why I wanted to read your survey is because that is doable. I mean, not an empty head all the time, but that's what meditation is so good for, is clearing your head. And you know, no matter how many times you clear your head, it's gonna get cluttered again. But meditation is just the act of kind of sweeping your sweeping your head. Finding a quiet space, doing some deep breathing, and um, either focusing on your breath or a mantra or something, you know, whatever style of meditation you're doing. And it almost always uh, helps. And a lot of times, honestly, for me, it's me just sitting for 20 minutes with my eyes closed worrying about myself. Um, How do you feel after writing these things down? Uh, Dramatic. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experience? This survey has been strangely enlightening. Don't be afraid to think about things. Thank you. Because there's a difference between obsessing about something and reflecting on something. And it's hard to, to put into words what that difference is. Um, well, I suppose you could say one enhances our life and the other um, um, corrodes our life. Lives, you're not my real dad. I am not mowing the lawn. This is an awful moment filled out by keeping my distance. And she writes, my mother passed away from lung cancer when I was 16, leaving just myself and my father in a whole mess of issues. We've always been close, but after my mother passed, we formed an unhealthy codependency, which only continues as the time passes. Flash forward to today. My father's now engaged to a woman for God knows what reason, who has zero respect for other people's boundaries and may very well have narcissistic personality disorder. Honestly. If your rich white children complain about how horrible and mentally taxing their childhood was, that should probably be a red flag. Anyway, my father's fiancé has a running joke with my boyfriend that whenever he says something idiotic, she will put it on a coffee mug and present the mug to him as a gift. Annoying at best. Tonight, in front of my entire family at Christmas, my boyfriend opened a coffee mug featuring a large grainy cell phone photo of my underwear and... She found in her Vermont home, which my boyfriend and I often stay at simply because it's a free place to crash when skiing, a home we always treat with the utmost respect, the photo of my thong on the mug was accompanied by the text, found in my daughter's room. Yes, you heard me right. My father's insane, rude, petty fiancé simultaneously accused and shamed my boyfriend and I via coffee mug. Of having sex on her young daughter's bed and leaving my underwear as a reminder. A completely false accusation, by the way. It's called dirty laundry. And I have no idea how my underwear would have ended up in her daughter's room. Honestly, I think she fictionalized this. What's so awful uh, about this moment? Or what's so awesome about this moment? The complete and utter embarrassment of having my underwear displayed to my family at Christmas on a coffee mug finally pushed me to tell her off keep my distance despite the crushing blow to my father and I's codependency. It's amazing how sometimes something really shitty can can have a gift inside of it. And um, <laughs> I love the idea, uh, speaking of gifts, of using a gift to shame somebody. that is so fu- that is like hall of fame, passive aggressive. It's like giving somebody a, a quilt that, that says cheater on it. <sighs> Holy fuck. Thank you for that. And good for you. This is an awful awesome moment filled out by Sausages. And she writes, Yesterday I came back from walking my dog and I was thirsty and hot, so I went to the tap to get a drink of water. And my mom said from behind me, Why are you drinking tap water? Do you want to be gay? 2017, ladies and gentlemen, 20-fucking-17. Everybody knows that if you want to stay heterosexual, you filter the water, right? And then when you find yourself in a gay bar, you know it's time to change the filter. This is an awfulsome moment uh, filled up by zipped titty doo and uh she writes so recently i've been having some medication troubles i have bipolar disorder so meds are a must most recently treating the depression aspects have been of more primary concern to myself and my psychiatrist so that's the main focus of the meds until a few days ago i was on seroquil as well as a lamictal also known as quidipine and lamotrigine i do uh, lamotrigine um Well, the main symptoms of my depression, aside from the suicidal stuff, was the incredibly excessive amount I was sleeping and the increased appetite and resulting weight gain. If you've ever taken Seroquel, you'll know that that shit knocks you the fuck out. So the amount I've been sleeping increased from my 13-hour depression slumbers to a whopping 15 hours a night alongside the occasional med-induced nap. Seroquel also has a weight gain side effect as well awesome stuff really so we scrapped that the other day i'm on latuda in addition to an increased dose of lamictal when you start taking lamictal everyone immediately warns you about the terrible life-threatening rash that less than 0.5 percent of the population develops well just after the med changes my arms start to swell up in hive and all i could think was rash horror death rash horror death by the way one of my favorite french new wave movies Uh, I then thought that perhaps death by depression medication was a rather poetic way to go, even though I'd prefer not to die via massive organ failure. Still poetic, though, and maybe that would work. Maybe I don't have to tell my doctor immediately. It was then I realized that I was suicidal again which is a potential side effect of LaTuda, a.k.a. my brand new med for those who can't keep the name straight. I'm definitely pro-medication, but dear God, the trial and error part sucks. For anyone else, just hang in there, and at least some of the side effects can be ridiculously, awful-somely ironic. Thank you for that. And that is so true. Be patient with the process. It is. I had a nightmare withdrawal off Abilify. Actually, a nightmare just 180 degree turn on Abilify like 2 years ago. And oh, it was at first it was awesome and then it was awful. Yeah. Somebody said there's a class action suit going on against the makers. Um this is a shame and secret survey filled out by CJ. And she is um, straight, question mark, in her 20s, uh, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been the victim of sexual abuse. Um, when I was four, my brother... And, uh, my brother was about six, we used to hide in one of our rooms and take off all of our clothes. Sometimes we would poke at each other's genitals. Sometimes we would kiss on the cheeks and near to each other's genital area. To this day, this disturbs me. I remember as a young child knowing this was strange, question mark, but also wanting to do it. I was a very lonely child and I think part of the draw was my brother who I idolized was giving me attention. I never talked to my brother about this and we were still relatively close. I have no idea what this counts as. I go to a therapist and I talk with her a little bit about it, but uh, never gave any details. Was I to blame? No, I was four. Was he to blame? No, he was six. It's all just so messed up because we were so young. You know, however you want to label it, I think doesn't matter, it's the feelings. It's about the feelings. That's like the main thing to do right away. Um, Because the feelings are gonna inform, if you do ever wind up wanting to put it in a category or assign a name to it, it has to be informed by what the feelings were, or at least considered. And so, trying to call it something before you explore how you really felt and gave weight to those feelings, is uh, you know, in my opinion, kind of putting the the cart before the before the horse. Um, she's been emotionally abused. I had a friend in high school who would tell me frequently that I was an awful person and an awful friend, and accuse me of not really wanting to be friends with her. At the same time, she told me I was the reason she was cutting, and that I am the reason she wants to kill herself because I was such a bad friend. But if I wasn't friends with her. She would kill herself. At the time, I didn't label it as abuse, but was a hundred percent sure that this was a fucked up situation, but didn't have the right vocabulary to label it as abuse. Um If you've been abused, are there positive experiences with the abusers? My brother and I are incredibly close. When we were growing up, people thought we were twins because we were almost inseparable. I loved him so much and I'm so proud of the person he is becoming. These feelings don't complicate how I view him now, but it adds to how I feel uncomfortable and weird about what we did as children. With my friend in high school, we almost never had any positive interactions. If we did, they were so rare and followed up with her being a complete abusive shithead. She has apologized to me and I believe she has grown, at least a little bit, from who she was in high school, but I have no interest in being friends with her because she was always kind of a mean person before she became abusive. Uh, darkest secrets. I imagine hanging myself in public places all the time. Fucked up, I know. I hope this makes some other person feel a little less alone. Intrusive thoughts are a bitch. Uh, I also imagine getting raped often, not because I found it ar- find it arousing. Uh, quite the opposite, actually. I wish I knew why I think about getting raped so often. You know, my, my thought on why certain things uh, like to nest in our brain is I think the things that cause us anxiety. Um, and th- I think that also goes for things that turn us on. Um, I think a lot of times they get paired with some type of experience that had anxiety attached to it or even trauma. And, um, and then that can become um, a thing that kind of sets up shop, hangs its shingle darkest secrets. I have nightmares all the time that I'm being assaulted. One time I had a nightmare that Neil Patrick Harris was raping me. It was fucking weird and part of me wants to laugh when I remember that and the other half makes me want to crawl under a rock and die. That would be... Can you imagine a film festival that is just people's dreams about interacting with celebrities? Oh my god. I would... I would go to every fucking taping. I don't know why I'm saying fuck so much. I think it might be the caffeine. Sexual fantasies, uh, most powerful to you. Mostly innocent stuff, like I imagine my significant other coming home and naked and we fuck and then snuggle. I just want someone to love me. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell my dad to go fuck himself and that he has always been harder on me than any of my siblings. I'd let him know that he's the reason I don't like coming home. I want him to know that when he asked me to choose between him and mom when I was 10, that I cried for days. I know he knows how this affected me, and he never apologized. I want him to know that he has done this to our relationship. I'm your fucking child, not your therapist. What, if anything, do you wish for? Sometimes when I'm falling asleep, I imagine this. I'm home, grading essays. I want to be a teacher. And my husband walks through the door. Our dog greets him, and I hear my husband act like he's going to play with our dog and laugh. He walks up behind me, asks me about how my day was. We watch The Office and then go to bed. Maybe someday we have some kids. I want this life more than anything. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared some of these things with a friend and more of these things with my counselor. How do you feel after writing these things down? Lighter. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Talk about it. If you don't feel like talking about it with another person, write one of these questionnaires. If you don't feel comfortable writing it there, write it in a diary or anywhere. Don't let it stay bottled up in your head. Thank you for that. Yeah, and I would say if you're anxious that you know committing to writing something on paper or on your computer... um, it's going to be seen by somebody else. Uh, write it, and then, uh, you know, five minutes later, make the commitment to um, get rid of it, delete it, or tear it up. And then that'll give you the freedom to really write it without that constraint that you ha- that it might be presented to somebody or seen by somebody. Um, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Denise O'Quiff. Oh, I love the Irish. Growing up, my parents never showed affection for us kids or praised us or gave us any encouragement at all. One day, I was playing a board game with my dad and he kept telling my mom how incredibly smart and talented I was. He was going on and on about it for a long time. I was about 10 and had never heard such things before. I was so proud. I felt I could go on and do great things because my dad said so. Shortly after that day, my dad was committed to the mental hospital diagnosed with schizophrenia because he was having delusions and hallucinations. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Thank you for that, and I'm so, so sorry. This is a happy moment filled out by living the dream. And this, this could be considered a an, an awfulsome moment. Um... This is filled out by, uh, like I said, living the dream. I had CT scans of my abdomen after a car accident. These scans revealed three large masses around my uterus. Last night, I had to fill out online documents for the OBGYN specialist for an appointment this week. One of the questions was, describe any trauma, such as domestic, sexual, emotional traumas you've experienced. I was able to write down with no shame or guilt my experience raped, sexually molested by brother when I was six or seven, raped in 2016, continuous emotional neglect from entire family. Instead of freaking out, I just wrote it down like, yep, this is what I've experienced. The tsunami-like shame and guilt waves were nowhere to be found. Side note, the tumors appear to be teratoma-like, which means they could have hair and teeth. Fucking awesome. They better have hair and teeth because that's fucking gross and hilarious. I'm calling my tumor baby Hepzibah. <laughs> that's awesome. And by the way, if you uh, haven't listened to the episode with Andrea Abbott, um, who some people might pronounce her last name, Abate. It's A-B-B-A-T-T-E um, or A-T-E. I can't remember which one, but... Um, there's a thing in there about a, a mass with hair and teeth. But her, her entire interview is great and should be a movie. I want to say it was from like three years ago, maybe. Uh, and then finally, this is an some moment uh, filled out by current address, The Basement Beneath Rock Bottom. And she writes... I have spent a lot of time in psychiatric hospitals this year. Often I am there with people whom I would prefer not to be locked in a confined space with. However, during my last admission, I was lucky enough to end up on a unit with three of the nicest and supportive people I have ever met. When your first introduction to a person is, hi, my name is blank and I wish I was dead, you can skip the boring small talk and get to the meaningful stuff quicker. Oftentimes, they acted as a surrogate family and offered the validation and support that my own biological family was unable to provide. And we have all stayed in touch as we discharged and moved into other programs. Most of us, including myself, have gone into residential treatment centers, and having a familiar, kind, and en- encouraging person I can call has made the transition a little easier. Even though I'm still a little angrier, angry that I was involuntarily committed to the hospital, I'm eternally grateful that I got to meet three of my closest friends. That is like life in a nutshell. Man, just ugly wrapping paper and a beautiful gift inside of it. And so much of dealing with life, I think, is just not assigning judgment uh, to things uh, that happen to us uh, or, or assuming that what we think is the totality of an experience is now set in stone and isn't going to be viewed any differently. Um, I can think of so many examples in my life where something I thought was quote-unquote shitty needed to happen for something great to happen later. Um, And I'm not, please don't misinterpret this as, you know, oh, so one day I'm going to find out it was awesome that uh, you know I was raped no I'm not I'm not saying that um you know what I'm saying and again you are not my real dad and I will take the dog out because I love dogs um listen if you're out there and you're struggling your cashew butter is on its way. I want you to go lay down on the couch, take that quilt that says cheater, wrap yourself up in it, make a plate of crackers, open the front door, and wait for the delivery man, because help is on its way. Seriously, if you're out there and you're you're struggling, um, you're not alone. You're so not alone. And um, if you don't open up or reach out for help, you'll never find out how truly not alone you are and how much purpose and meaning you can find in your life by connecting to people who understand you. Because not only can they help you, you can then turn around and help somebody who was in the spot you were when you didn't have any trust and you didn't have any hope and you didn't want to be here. And um, I was one of those people and I'm glad I asked for help because I love being alive and I love doing this show and I love cashew butter. <laughs> I really kind of want to end on that and just, and then not even put the theme music in. And just the the sounds of me chewing crackers. By the way, my cashew butter did come, and it was a good batch. Anyway, you're not alone. Thanks for listening, and I am a jackass. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully beautifully fucked up in some weird way.